This is Farah, and you're listening to Beef for Bacchus, the podcast about wine stories from the Levant, Eastern Mediterranean, and the Caucasus. Welcome back to the first episode of 2020. I know it's been a while, and I'm sorry it took so long. I was in the midst of moving houses, but we should be back on track now that I'm no longer living out of boxes. This episode is not about a winery. Today we're talking about Arabic wine poetry and religion. The pleasure of life is threefold. Wine, a comrade and a songstress. Drive off worry with aged wine and know that in wine the souls find rest. How often we've cured with the glass worries more bitter than death's stress. This is an Arabic poem by Abu Nawas, translated by Alex Rowell. Alex is the author of the book Vintage Humor, the Islamic wine poetry of Abu Nawas, and he's the guest on this episode. But before I get to that, some quick background. Al-Hassan ibn Hani, or Abu Nawas, was born in the mid to late 8th century in Ahwaz, Iran, and he died some 60 years later in Baghdad, Iraq. So he's born in Iran, and after his father dies, this Persian Arab kid moves to Basra in Iraq and he starts working in a perfume suit. And when he's not doing that, he's hanging out at the mosque and he's learning about history, astronomy, classical poetry, law. It acts like a school for him. And of course, he learns the Quran and the Hadith. Hadith are records of the Prophet's sayings and actions. They're kind of like a collection of appendices added to the Quran Only not everyone agrees or believes in every appendix, but they are still very important when it comes to Islamic belief, to varying degrees. Eventually, Abu Nawas gets discovered by this big shot poet, Waliba ibn al-Hubab, who then becomes his mentor, and some accounts say he was also his lover. Now, we need to keep in mind that this was all during the time of Harun al-Rashid, who you might remember from Alf Laylu Layla or 1001 Nights slash Arabian Nights. Abu Nawas's lifetime coincides with the Abbasid Caliphate, which is said to be the golden age of Arabic literature. The most famous category of Abu Nawas's poetry, which includes hunt poems and love poems, was the Khamriyat, which are the poems about wine. And just in case you forget to Wikipedia this later, the Abbasids, they were the second caliphate. The name comes from Abbas, the Prophet Muhammad's uncle. The members of his family wanted to get rid of the Umayyads, and the way they did that was by gaining popularity from the Shia Arabs and the Persians. So once they gained control of the empire, the focus shifted from North Africa and the Mediterranean and Southern Europe and moved east, and the capital of the empire went from Damascus to Baghdad. So now you kind of have a rough idea as to who Abu Nawas was at the time and where he was living and where we are and where we're going to go. But who's Alex? Yeah, good question. Um, well, I came here in 20, I came to Beirut in 2012 as a journalist uh, writing for Now Lebanon, a website you may have known. It's no longer existent. And like all the foreigners in Beirut, you know, I had to learn Arabic. I had a slight advantage in that I had actually grown up in the United Arab Emirates for 17 years. I lived there and went to school there. So we were taught from the age of about six how to read Arabic and I always knew some basic vocabulary, but it never really got much further than that, you know, because in the UAE you don't really need Arabic. Uh, 
Emiratis are about 10% of the population, and they all speak English anyway, the ones that you're likely to encounter. So it was very different coming to Beirut in 2012, where I think in your daily life you really do need Arabic. So I um, studied, I decided to study the classical Fusha Arabic, uh, thinking that I could get, you know, conversational Amiya just from the street. And it happens that my wife, who was then my girlfriend, is Lebanese, so I'm spending time with her family, you know, you pick up the language that way. And then it was, I think, 2014 when I was in a bar, actually, with, with a Lebanese friend who said, you know, well, if you really want to read some good Arabic stuff, you need to try this Abu Nuwas guy. I said, okay, what's that? And he quoted the first line of probably his most famous poem, And I didn't understand a word, of course. Um, <laughs> but then he explained it to me. I said, wow, that's actually really good. And that actually immediately made me think of Oscar Wilde's famous quote about how I can resist anything except for temptation. Uh, except this was, of course, about a thousand years before, wild. So I went the next day, I think literally the next day, to a bookshop and bought, um, you know, the, the Diwan, so-called, the collected works or of, of the wine poems of Abu Nuwas. And initially it was just curiosity and also hoping to improve Arabic. Um, not that you necessarily need to know 20 different words for wine to get through your day uh, <laughs> in, in life, but... Um, you know, if you have any kind you of... never know. Sure, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's a good party trick, maybe. It was an interesting sort of exercise in, in building up uh, ability, I would say, in Arabic, because one of the, the advantages of poetry is that there are just fewer words. If you wanted to translate an essay, say, as a beginner in Arabic, you know, that's, they say, 3,000 words. You might not know 90% of them, whereas a poem, at least, you know, you, and some of the poems are very short. They might just be two lines long. So you, you can almost manage looking up 10 words, even if that takes you half an hour and it's still hard to piece together. But that was generally how it began. So I began doing it a nightly sort of training exercise, if you like, just trying to get myself to understand these poems. And then over time... Was there anyone helping you to kind of break oh, it sure, down? Oh, sure, sure. I mean, well... Like, did you know who he was before that? Vaguely. I mean, again, you know, everyone sort of vaguely knows who he is, I feel, at least in Beirut, in, in the Arab world. Or his name, maybe. Right, yeah. Um, not that's of course not the case in in the anglophone world and i had friends that of course i would yeah i would pester them with questions over whatsapp and so on including the guy who first introduced me to him and they probably what did i do yeah they probably regretted that very quickly um and i you know you there's various ways of there's dictionaries you can obviously consult and over time you learn sort of tricks of how to do it and then it got to the point where i had about a hundred this probably went on for two or three years, just every night doing one or, you know, I mean... Was it just for fun? Like, did you, were you planning on turning it into a book? Or? Initially, no, not at all. It was simply just that I found it cool and uh, interesting to learn and I was curious about it and realized over time that it was getting a bit easier. And then I started to think, well, again, just for fun, why don't I try and set it to rhyme, try and mimic the rhyme scheme mm -hmm. you know, in, in all of classical Arabic poetry? Every line rhymes with every other line on exactly the same syllable. It's, it's monorhyme, they would call it. And again, I discovered that, you know, perhaps not in the best quality, but it, it was something I could do one way or another. Didn't always work you know, artistically, let's say, but sometimes it came off better than others. And then, as I say, I got to the point where I had maybe, hundred, I think, 125 of these, and I thought, well, this is getting silly now. You know, <laughs> I, have to, I have to try and get some return on my three years of, of, of this hobby. What were you doing at the same time? Like, Well, just journalism, as I say. So writing a lot about you know, Lebanon and, and Syria and sort of Middle East politics and no, nothing really at all to do with, mm -hmm. with Abu Nuwas. Although I think there are certainly political dimensions to the poems that come out and, and 
there is a link definitely even with with very current affairs you can you can tie a lot and you can learn a lot from consulting Abu Nuhas and that's I mean again it, it, this wouldn't have kept me going so long if it was simply funny little poems about partying or something there's mm -hmm. there's a there's, there's something much deeper there in Abu Nuhas that I think that's what really hooked me in when I realized this is this man deserves to be known about much more than he is at least in the English-speaking world. I mean, he's very well known, I think, in the Arab world. Did you study him separately from his writings, or do you feel like through his poetry you also learned about him as a person? Well, yeah, that certainly came into it. So uh, when I decided or, or believed I could perhaps turn this into a book, I thought, well, then, of course, I'm going to have to introduce a kind of biological, uh, biographical sorry, element. And I discovered there are books out there in Arabic, sort of biographies, if you like, of him. There are quite a few, in fact. Um, some of them not always very reliable in the scholarly sense, but you learn to filter those out. And so, yeah, um, th the first 50 pages of the book are an introduction of mine, kind of a lengthy essay, the first half of which is a sort of biographical portrait of him and also the general historical context in which he lived. And then the second half introduces the poems per se and gets into the form and the themes and, you know, these sort of considerations. And then I end with a little bit on why I chose to call them Islamic, which was a bit controversial and not... Can you unpack that a bit? Sure. It was something that not everyone was happy with, including academics that I was consulting. I mean, when, it, when it got very serious and when I realized I had a book deal on my hands, I suddenly got very scared because, you, you know, all kinds of panic. What if, what if everything I thought I knew was, was, was BS? Um, what if I know nothing at all about this guy? So I wrote to probably the, the, the leading authority on Abu Nuas in the English academic world, or the English-speaking academic world, which is uh, Professor Philip Kennedy of New York University. He didn't like this idea of, of calling it Islamic. He said it's better to call it Arabic. My thinking was influenced more by, and again, there were others who, who on the contrary, encouraged it. There was a, I mean, one person who was influential for me in this regard and who made me stick my ground, as it were, was a late Harvard scholar, Shahab Ahmed. He died very young. Uh, I think he was in his 40s only, and this was only a few years ago. But he wrote an excellent book called What is Islam? Uh, sounds very simple. The book was anything but simple. <laughs> it was 700 pages or something, maybe longer. Very interestingly, he chose for the cover of his book a, a photo of an old coin by the Mughal emperor Jahangir in what's now India. And the coin shows him in the one hand holding the Quran, and in the other hand holding a wine goblet. And you know, I think it says La ilaha illallah or some kind of religious fraying around the outside. Um, Jahangir was, like so many Muslim emperors, a, a habitual drinker. He even uh, had a, a tendency to opium as well. But he preferred wine over opium. Okay. Interesting. And so the idea being that there shouldn't necessarily be a contradiction between these two things. And that's a point that Shahab Ahmed in the book constantly tries to, to press. Not just about wine. I mean, wine is only a small part of it, but in, in all facets of what we would now take to be, let's say, modern life or, or, or liberty or, you know, th there need be no contradiction in, in almost all cases. And I think also when you dive into the, that's one angle, even when you dive into the narrow realm of Islamic law, uh, sharia, fiqh, the jurisprudence, even there it's by no means as clear as people tend to imagine this question of the prohibition of wine. Um, if you look at what the Quran actually says, most of the references are quite ambiguous or, or even moderate. So, for example, there's the one about not praying when drunk. So it's 
don't pray when drunk, but but it's not don't drink. Exactly. Stop me if I'm if I'm making this too much of a history lecture, but no, well, in, that's as totally brief fine. as <laughs> as brief as possible. When at the very beginning, the advent of Islam, when the Prophet is still in Mecca, wine is perfectly permissible, and we know. Of course, that prior to Islam, the Arabs of Arabia uh, drank wine routinely. This is in all of the poetry of the era, known as the Jahiliya period. Even when the Prophet then moved to Medina in 622, wine had still not been, there had been no suggestion that it was uh, prohibited. Only thereafter, you, you began to get these verses in the Quran that gradually took a, an increasingly negative tone towards it. So I mentioned the prayer, uh, don't go to the prayer when drunk line. The story there, and this is according to the orthodox Sunni, you know, um, this is not some radical or, or weird heterodox interpretation. This is if you look at the tafsir of Ibn Kathir, for example, the tafsir of Al-Tabari, which, which are establishment scholars. The, the story goes that there was a, a companion of the Prophet, uh, a man named Abdurrahman ibn Auf, who hosted a large lunch, and as always, they drank a lot of wine. And when the evening prayer time was called, they all went to the mosque and a, a mistake was made in the recitation of the Quran at one point because they were inebriated. And so it was for that reason that God sent down, you know, don't come and do this when you're drunk until you know what you're saying. For example. And so there are other verses that you know, make similar points. There's even a line where it says that wine has benefits for the people. So he's talking to the Prophet here. They're going to ask you about wine and gambling. Say there is great sin in them, but also benefits for the people. It's like very um, diplomatic. Right. He, he, in fairness, he then goes on to say, So, so the, sin is, the sin outweighs. Which, um, again, it is a sort of moderate... Uh, you know, it's, it's a pros and cons uh, way of putting it. And I think, you know, plenty of non-Muslims might even agree that, yeah, you know, drink in moderation, as, as we always say. It's only later on, the final pronouncement of the Quran comes down, which is, um, I may be getting this slightly wrong, but This is in the sternest Quranic verse. It's Rijsun min amal shaitan So the key word is avoid it. Now, the, the question among scholars, uh, Islamic theologians, then became is this prohibition yeah. or is it merely discouragement? Um, yeah. Avoid to what extent? Sure. Yeah. He, d he doesn't, and again, critically, he doesn't use the word haram or any of its derivatives. It doesn't for, whereas, for example, pork, meat, it says very in, uh, unambiguously, hurrima alaykum lahmul khinzir. The word haram is, is crucial in the, in the sort of theological sense. Um, is it also that there's like the definition or the translation of khamer is a bit. That also, that also became an interesting uh, dispute again among the theologians. There was wiggle room because the Quran only ever mentions khamr, which, if you look into the sort of classical definition of it, referred only to wine made from grapes and a, and a strong wine in terms of alcohol content. They'd often cut it with water because it was that strong, which again, the ancient Greeks also did, and it's recommended in the Babylonian, Babylonian Talmud. Whereas the, there was another substance called nabith, which is today the more common word used for wine in Arabic. And I, I think it's for this very reason, in fact, because nabith was 
Again, if you wanted to take a literalist position, you'd say, well, the Quran only mentions Khamar. What's wrong with Nabith in that case? And Nabith would have been made of different fruits, usually dates, raisins. You can theoretically make Nabith from almost anything. Nowadays, they use them interchangeably. Correct, yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone really gets or, or, or even believes there's a distinction between. But we tend not to say, oh, you know, Atini al-Khamar or something. It's, um, yeah. And I think it's for this reason, because over the years, there was, for example, there were schools of Islamic theology, like the, the Hanafis, who actually said, no, no, Nabith is halal, it's totally fine. They were obviously disputed, but there was, again, some wiggle room there, which they didn't want to try that with Khamar, because they thought maybe that's just too difficult a battle to win. So, but technically they're both alcoholic, the only difference alcoholic. is the fruit. Yeah, but Nabith would be weaker. Um, and okay. so for that reason, actually, Abu Nuas in his poems, one of the running jokes is that he always says, I won't drink Nabith, you know, I want, I want the Khamar, give me the good stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, even a poet like Mahmoud Darwish in, in the modern era, his very last book of poetry that he released before he died, called Madih al-Nabith, it's a, a sort of a tribute to, to wine, but even he uses the word Nabith, and I, again, I feel it just became accustomed to, let's not call it Khamar, okay, let's call it Nabith, you know. And again, going back to the point I made just briefly about how pork is explicitly banned using the word horima, which is not the case for wine. I, th I have a theory that that is why you tend to find through history, wherever there were communities of Muslims, they tended to drink wine, but not to my knowledge did they ever drink, ever eat pork. Um, even now you, you often encounter Muslim people who are quite secular who will drink wine, but they'll say, no man, I don't eat pork. What are you, mm -hmm. are you crazy? You know, um, so that, that seems to have been kind of ingrained. And again, that may have roots in the fact that pork was, there was just no argument there. It was haram, clearly. Wine, there was always some kind of argument possible. Um, but even that, that's only, again, one facet why I think of them as Islamic poems. I think it, what it really comes down to is that it's just impossible to imagine Abu Nuas without Islam. Um, you know, the very first piece of literature he encountered as a child was the Quran. Every one of the 13,000 lines that he penned bears some kind of Islamic signature or trace. It's just very clear whether it's... He was a student of it. Correct, yeah. He, was, uh, he in fact was a teacher of it. He taught okay. uh, hadith, which is one of the branches of theology, to the scholar al-Shafi'i, who went on to found one of the main schools of, of jurisprudence. Um, there are still two hadiths to this day that bear his name in the chain of transmission. He was actually sort of a figure of Islamic theology even, not just Islamic culture. It, it just is, it seems crazy to strip that away. And again, if you, if, you, if, you, if you know to look out for it in his poems, you start to find everywhere allusions and references to words you find in the Quran. I mean, it's, it's really just totally stitched in and dyed in. And there's, it, to me, if, if, if he were writing, if he were a Christian writing poems like that, we would call him a Christian poet in, you know, in the way that we call G.K. Chesterton or someone else. There's something funny about this dispute over whether to refer to Abu Nawas's work as Islamic or not. By not calling them so, we're putting the religion in this conservative or orthodox box. It makes it seem like it's the only version of Islam, which is the exact opposite of what Abu Nawas was trying to do through his poetry. While it's true that not everything that is Arabic is necessarily Islamic, it can still be true that these particular works are Islamic when you learn about who Abu Nawas was. Are people resistant to calling the work Islamic because they don't want to associate wine with Islam? 
Or is it because that's not what they know to be Islamic because that's not how Islam is defined today? Or is it because Alex, a British journalist, is the one saying this work is Islamic? Do you think it was just because people were like sensitive of the fact that like you're a foreigner writing about it, so they thought it could have been that's that. how you're seeing it? could have been it. that. I mean, yeah, people are, there is obviously a sensitivity about this kind of thing. And no one wants to be accused, perhaps, of blasphemy or whatever it might be. Um, I've actually never had any problems like that so far. I mean, the book is not perhaps big enough or well enough known, but... Because like uh, people, might, they might not know that he was a student of Islam and he was a teacher of Islam. Like, so they don't realize that it's pretty accurate to say that he's connecting the two. You know, so then I, I would imagine, yeah. I mean, they're assuming that like, oh, it's just a blanket statement because he's a dude from the Arab region, or right. Um, and there's also there's also a problem in that how he's perceived today, even in the Arab world, he's thought of as this you know, extreme sort of heretic and also just a sort of a jester, almost like an idiot, a, a clown figure, which is also how he's portrayed in the, in the Alf Layla Walayla, the 1001 Nights. The, the historical Abu Nuwas, at least as, as I was able to uncover him, was a very different kind of a figure. He was a, he was a, a genuine intellectual. Wine was only about um, a fifth of the, of the subject matter that he dealt with anyway. You know, he, had, he had 300 poems on wine and about 1,200 on all kinds of other subjects. He was very interested in science and knowledge and you know, even astronomy and things like that. Um, don't forget, Baghdad at the time was the scene of a, of a great intellectual awakening, a kind of um, an enlightenment moment for the, for the Arab world. He, he, had, he had a front row seat in that. He, was, he, he arrived in Baghdad just as Harun al-Rashid, the legendary caliph whose name is now associated forever with this golden age, just as he was coming to power. So, so Abu Nuwas was... You know, wine was almost an incidental part to this. It happened that he turned his attention to it for the purpose of poetry and everything. And of course, wine was being drunk. But he was—I um, mean, don't, you don't have to take my word for it. There's a scholar of from Basra around the time in the ninth century called Al Asmari who said, "I have sat at many sessions with scholars of all kinds with Abu Nuwas, and there wasn't one subject on which he didn't uh, surpass them." Even if that's a bit of flattery or exaggeration, it's still a smoke that there must be some fire to it. Why is it that he has this um, reputation for being a gesture or a clown? Like, if, if he was such a knowledgeable guy and wrote such beautiful things, is it just they're trying to separate him from religion by, like, discrediting? Or? That's an interesting way, that's an interesting idea. I mean, I, I have no evidence for that, but it, it would make sense. It would be consistent with, I mean, again, to sort of very briefly dip into history. After Abu Nuwas, shortly after he died, or actually shortly before he died, a new caliph took power in, in Baghdad called Al-Ma'mun, who was of a, he held a, a belief, a doctrinal belief that is now considered heretical called Al-I'tizal, he was from the, the Mu'tazila, who were still very, stir, you know, very conservative and, and devout people, but they believed in introducing a form of, let's say, Greek-inspired philosophy, it's called Al-Kalam, a way of, of reasoning as a means of doing theology and, and jurisprudence. Their, their great opponents were the, what's called the Ahl al-Hadith, the people who said, no, the way to resolve a question is to look at what the Prophet did according to the books known as Al-Hadith. In the end, you know, there was a sort of a, 
a dispute that went on for many decades. In the end, the Hadith people won out. And that is why now today Sunni Islam, the Orthodox largest branch of Islam, takes for granted that the Hadith are a key part of, of the religion. They sort of complement the Quran, if you like, whenever you have any juridical question or, or dispute. You, know, you look at first what the Quran said, and if not, then what the Hadith said. That's now taken for granted. And whereas in Abu Nuwas's time, that wasn't at all the case. So it was really a, an accident of politics, you could say, or an accident of history, that that particular faction won the day in the end. It could easily have gone the other way, and we might Hadith might just be a marginal part of theology, and we might use speculative reasoning and kind of philosophy instead, had the Mu'tazila won out. The reason why I bring all that up is that you're right to say that this, this camp, the Hadith camp, took a very stern negative view of, of people like Abu Nuwas and of wine in general. In fact, this goes back to what we're talking about, the Qur'an. The Qur'an is, I would say, ambiguous-ish on wine. The Hadith is not. The Hadith is very clear. They use the word haram, the, the, the so-called tahrim or prohibition of, of wine. If you just type into Google, you know, why is wine haram? 90% of the, of the texts you'll find refer to the Hadith, not the Qur'an. Um, it's just a more stern, austere, uh, conservative view of wine than, than you find in the Qur'an. So yes, there was perhaps, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a rewriting of history, but they would have had no reason to celebrate a man like Abu Nuwas. He was their enemy. He, he wrote poems satirizing the very idea of hadith. You know how if you ever read the hadith, it, it has a, a chain of transmission. So it says, you know, guy X heard from guy B, who heard from guy C, and it goes all the way down to supposedly an eyewitness who saw the prophet say or do X, Y, Z. So it's like when you play telephone. Exactly. You passed it on, and then at the end you wonder, like, what did it turn out to be after exactly, passing through yeah. 12 people? Um, and so for this reason, you know, plenty of hadith are spurious, are, are fabricated. And, and, you know, it's one of the great challenges always in Islamic law is how do you detect a, f a forgery and how do you know the real thing? Abu Nuwas actually wrote poems mocking all this stuff. So he would say, <laughs> you know, I heard from guy A who heard from guy B, blah, 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 that uh, he who dies, a lover, gets to go to paradise as a martyr or something like that. Just stupid things, but uh, this, this pissed them off a lot. You know, he, he, so, so <laughs> yes, they, they, were, they were theological, political, cultural, in every way they were foes. So that's another reason you could say why the conservatives who tend to be dominant today, although with plenty of exceptions, um, certainly don't take a positive view of Abu Nuwas. Might have also not just been the fact that he was writing about wine, it might have been also who he was in general. Like, wasn't he also a homosexual? And there were many facets of who he was that maybe that's why they wanted to um, he, yeah, he, he did cancel out anything he did. He did almost everything possible to annoy people like that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he was, I would probably say bisexual rather than, rather than gay uh, or omnisexual. Um, but interestingly, he was also a friend of power in a way. He was, he was a very good friend of one of the caliphs, Al-Amin the son of Harun al-Rashid. He became his court poet, his kind of poet laureate, his, uh, you know, his number two, or his Nadim in Arabic, uh, which means you know, your close drinking partner and, and good friend. So in his day, he was not seen as an enemy of the state or anything like that. On the contrary, he was probably you know, almost too close to the, to the ruler. And when Al-Amin then had a dispute with his brother Al-Ma'mun, who replaced him, one of the angles of attack they used to use against him was, ha, you see he's friends with Abu Nuwas, the, the deviant and the, you know, the hell-raising, debauched wine drunkard and so on. 
which was perfectly true. Amin was a, was a terrible libertine as well. They were as bad as each other. Um, one of the most moving poems, I think, is, is his eulogy to Al-Amin. You can, you can clearly see that this is not something just perfunctory that he was forced to perform for the occasion. No, he's, he's really saying bye to, uh, to his best friend. It's quite, um, quite sad because he, he himself died a couple of years later. You know, there was clearly a sort of just a decline from that moment onwards. There was something that I was reading about of like how these poems started and or at least where most of them were written and it was something about wine parties. Correct me if I'm wrong because this was like pulled from a bunch of different sources and mm -hmm. you know Google Books and whatever where I could dig it up. These wine parties used to occur after dinner and they would get together and just start I mean, I don't want to call it a rap battle, but like... <laughs> You're absolutely right, yeah. Uh, but something like that. Improvising can, can or extemporizing. Yeah, there probably were several ways in which the poems were composed, but that certainly is... That's, that's said to be one of the ways, yeah. Um, it, it, it could be anything. They could be just in a field. They would often go take a few bottles to a, a sort of riverside meadow with, surrounded by flowers in the day. And a lot of the drinking was done in the day, by the way, including in the morning. There's even a... <laughs> specific verb for it in Arabic, al-istibah, means to have wine in the morning specifically. Uh, so they're drinking all, all hours of the day. Uh, and yeah, so as, exactly as you described, they would simply get around, and it is like a, like a rap battle, or perhaps in the Lebanese context you call it a zajal type mm -hmm. thing. Uh, you know, one guy gets up, and again, this is even in Abu Nuwas's Diwan and his collected works, you see how this works. Say there's five people, one guy might say, or woman in fact, some of them were women, would say a line with, that ends in a certain consonant, and then the next person has to pick it up, and it goes in a sort of circle like that until whoever has the best line, and then they all sort of cheers, I guess. Um, but then night times were also a big part of it. So again, um, a lot of the poems, it's one of my favorite sort of types of, of his wine poems. It's very late at night. They've clearly been drinking for a while anyway, and then they get on their camels, and they ride through the night, knowing that their particular village or town has this excellent, you know, vintner that they just have to have his wine right now. And they knock on his door, and of course he's asleep and he's a bit scared. You know, why are you knocking on my door? Who are you? Are you robbers or something? He goes, No, 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 we're, I'm Abu Nuwas. He goes, Oh, come in, come in. Why didn't you say so? You know? And then they go to to his cellar and they find, you know, the oldest cask that has the most cobwebs and spiders on it. And then he cracks it open, and you know, and then. Then that suddenly a singer is produced, and and an oud comes out, and again it goes on till, till the sun comes up. This is like a movie. It sounds a lot of, like a lot of fun, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and when they were doing these like picnics and parties, and there was someone recording all of this, like taking note of all of it, or it was then. I mean, yeah, this is where you have to sort of suspend your disbelief to some extent, and you know, who's to say that he didn't rewrite it a bit after the fact. I mean, again, you know, clearly there's no, there's no tape recorder there. Mm -hmm. Even you get into the question of how do we even know that these poems were written by him at all? How do we know there was a person called Abu Nuwas? I think it's a legitimate question, just as one could ask, was there ever a Jesus Christ or, or a Prophet Muhammad? You know, in theory, you could ask these things. There's no proof of his existence? Well, like no, so but I'm just saying, there is a question. Now, the answer to that would be, and I, I get into this into the book to the best that I can, we have he didn't, he didn't write his own diwan in the sense that later poets might have done. And there's no surviving copy that was written in his own pen. There was a guy called Abu Hiffan, who was a contemporary. He knew him personally. He wrote a book called Akbar Abi Nuwas, which essentially translates to biographical anecdotes of Abu Nuwas. And this 
we do, you know, there's reason to believe this is legitimate and this is a, a true account, and that includes quite a large number of the poems. And there were other scholars who came about a century or two after that who were interested in him and, you know, went and interviewed all the people who knew about poetry and said, you know, what do you have of Abu Nuwas? Mm-hmm. And so they, by a full of progress, by a cross-checking process of triangulation and so on, they arrived at, there were two main people and a third one also who had their collections of Abu Nuwas poems. And of course they slightly, there's, you know, divergence between them in some cases, but in the end, these two German scholars, uh, Ewald Wagner and Gregor Scholler, in the 20, 20th century, did decades of backbreaking work, going and finding the oldest manuscripts of these collections. Some of them go back to, I think, the 11th century AD. They're scattered across museums from you know, Istanbul to Damascus to Milan and London. And they put together this five volume, the most authoritative, credible set of poems that we have. Does it mean that there aren't also some forgeries in there? No, of course, there's a possibility, but... I mean, I'm speculating here, but like, could it be possible that Abu Nawas is like a, more of a name for the whole genre and like a lot of people were writing these things and they just put it under this like pen name? That, that is what one of the compilers of these collections in the medieval times said, he said, you know, he snapped at one point, you know, why does everyone assume that every wine poem must be Abu Nuwas? Um, like maybe it was a way to stay anonymous by writing these there things? Could, there could have been an element of that, but there, there were plenty of other wine poets at the same time who wrote in their own names and who have separate collections. You know, it, it isn't that there aren't other wine poets, on the contrary. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a major genre of poetry at the time. Um, this is, again, something that's quite hard, sort of hard to imagine, hard to really believe when you first hear it, but uh, it's the simple truth. Are there other like cool Arabic words that you could share, like that? like al istibah? Yeah, <laughs> that I uh, had no idea that existed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, funny enough, I, f- I found that also even I mean you find it in Abu Nuwas. I also found it in a in a text of hadith going back to. Um, it's a story of how on the morning of one of the battles that's mentioned in the Quran, I think it's the Battle of Uhud. It says, I'm not quoting word for word here, but istabaha. So on the morning of the battle, they drank wine for, you know, Dutch courage, essentially. Um, <laughs> and again, this was, this was prior to the, the Medina. This was prior to the prohibition of, of wine. Mm-hmm. So it was perfectly fine back then to, to drink wine. Well, you have al-ikhtibaq, which is the opposite. It's to drink in the evening. You have al-mubakara, which just means to drink as early as possible. Uh, you know, he often begins a poem, bakir, blah, blah, blah. Oh, the, I mean, the wine vocabulary is, is a really fascinating part of it all. Like I said, there are at least 20 words for wine in, in Abu Nuwas alone. I think I found about 35 in Arabic literature in total. And I mean, you try and think of even just three in English. I can't. Mm-hmm. Wine is just wine. That's a, um, and they're very interesting in that they, they tell you something about the wine. So, for example, mudam means aged a long time. From the verb, you know, you can see a, a, a grammatical collection to doom yeah. and... Uh, a sulaf is what they call, I think, free-run wine. So it hasn't been pressed. It's just made from the masalafa minal minal. You know. So yeah, in those two cases, you can see how it actually refers. It's not just a, a word for the sake of it. It's you know, if he says, "Give me mudam," he means give me old wine, mm. not just any wine. Um, 
there, there's descriptors. Right. And others, interestingly, for example, a diriac betrays a clear Greek origin because theriaca is a Greek uh, word for antidote. And I believe even in modern Arabic they say teriyah or diriac or for medicine, essentially. So you see how, and of course there were Persian words as well. Zarajun means gold-colored, and that's a Persian origin word. So he's throwing in, it's such a, it's such a mix of Greek, Persian, sort of Syriac influence, even some Indian. All those cultures were, were meeting at, in Baghdad at that time, and specifically in the poetry of Abu Nuwas, who was clearly bilingual Arabic and Persian, because he throws Persian words into the poems at times, and also seems to have known some Syriac probably from all the time he was spending at monasteries um, having drinks, uh, literally. So when you're translating this stuff, I'm sure that was a problem, like, because you're coming from like an Arabic background. Yeah. And then I mean, you have these words. Fortunately, the, wherever those exist, and there aren't too many of them, but they, there is a translation provided in the Arabic, <laughs> luckily. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't speak Persian, <laughs> sadly. Why do you think you had such an affinity to all of this? Is, was there a love of wine before this and you just kind of like you fell down a rabbit hole or? <laughs> if, if anything, I've, I've come to like wine more probably since discovering Abu Nuwas. I mean, I've always enjoyed drinking of any kind. I mean, not in an alcoholic sense, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's been a part of my life since probably my late teens, certainly. But I was probably more into whiskey at the time and things like that. I've since grown to, to like wine more, I think. For me, it was less about that than about just sort of, again, what I was saying, that there's a very powerful sense when you read the poems that wine somehow stands in for a kind of, you know, if I, if I can use the word civilization, a global or a human civilization that really is, is common across borders and peoples and time even, and, and you know, languages and religions. And, it's easy to say that, and this is a very glib thing we often are told, you know, we're all one and everything, but it's a different thing to actually see it with your own eyes. And I think when I do, when I read Abu Nuwas, that's the very powerful sense that I get that, my God, you know, they really are like us. <laughs> <laughs> there, there really is no West and East. I mean, you know, we really are all one. It's not, it's not something, just a slogan. It's like, my God, this guy could be from anywhere. This guy could be my friend today in, in 2019, um, even though this is, I'm reading something from 1200 years ago in, in Baghdad. And if there is such a thing as civilization, it's curious, whether it's from the Athens of Socrates or Rome, or again to, to Baghdad or even further east. I mentioned the Mughal Empire earlier. It's interesting that wine always has been a part of this um, for whatever reason. It's, it's maybe something mysterious. Um, perhaps it has to do with seeking inspiration and, and striving for things better than our current moment or whether it's um, you know it could be anything to do with fertility I mean, when you go to the temple of Bacchus and Baalbek obviously where your podcast gets its name from who could fail to be struck looking at that structure and, and when you look at that particularly always striking to me is the gateway at the mm -hmm. entrance how it's all so intricately carved you know it's so high up you can barely even see it it's all vine leaves, yeah. of course, and I'm, I'd love. You, I'm sure you know this better than me, and I'd love to be taken there by a real architectural expert, and because I, I believe there's some sort of narrative being told, a story in this, inside the, probably having to do with you know, pagan gods and fertility, yeah. life and death, and all that stuff. So it, it just it's curious <coughs> to me that wine has always played a role wherever there has been quote unquote civilization, and by that I mean people 
not just living for the sake of breathing and eating and dying, but striving for art or striving for knowledge and science, um, music, literature, beauty of any kind. You know, um, wine seems to be present in, in all those cases. And where, where wine is not present, mankind seems to do not so well. <laughs> Attempts to, to quash it out have, have failed, including if there was ever even an attempt in the Islamic case. You can find Alex's book at any of the major bookstores in Beirut. It's also available on Amazon. I will put the link in the show notes. I have a few announcements. Number one, I'm going to be releasing a playlist that you can use whenever you're having some wine or hanging out with some friends. I've read a few things about how music and sound can affect your wine tasting experience, as it does most things. So I figured this would be a cool way to create an experience for listeners of this podcast and also expose you to new music and just kind of share something different. I'll be releasing the first one on February 14th. So you can use it on Valentine's Day. Announcement two. I'm going to be releasing shorter episodes on this podcast in between the longer ones so that there's always new content and there's something interesting. Sometimes there's news, there's a short clip, there's something that doesn't necessarily require a half hour, but it's still something worth sharing. I'm going to be calling these just a drop. Get it? <laughs> the last announcement is next week, the Trip Podcast, which is part of the Roads and Kingdoms Network, is going to be releasing their last episode from their visit to Beirut, and it's going to be featuring me. Unfortunately, the trip is only available on Luminary, which is like the Netflix of podcasts, and that's subscription-based, and it's also not available worldwide just yet, so even I'm going to have a little trouble trying to figure out how to listen to this. But if you can, please do check it out and listen to the other episodes that are also about Beirut. I'll be sharing all of this on Facebook and Instagram, but I thought it would be worth mentioning right now. So that's the first episode of 2020. Please let me know if you liked it, if you found this interesting, if you had ever heard of Abu Nawas, and if you're going to look into more of his work. Shoot me an email at info at beefforbacchus.com, info at beefforbacchus.com, B-F-O-R-B-A-C-C-H-U-S.com. And make sure to check out the website for any updates and new news going on. Thank you for listening. Once again, this is Farah signing off for the Beef for Bacchus podcast. <laughs>